Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Nan Lee of Obvious Ventures and Zavindar of Lux. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Cool. So, uh, let's, let's start with the brief introductions. Uh, let's start with what is your investment focus or interest today? Where, where are you spending a lot of time? And then you maybe give a quick uh, context of how that's evolved over time since, since you guys joined Obvious and, and Lux, respectively. Uh, Zavin, do you want to start? Sure, sure. So I, I, uh, I started my career in venture with Non at Innovation Endeavors. I uh, started dabbling deeply at this kind of, at least then, this was 2013, 2014, emerging intersection of software plus deep tech. Uh, it's, it's obviously a little bit of a moving window, a moving target over time as technologies kind of come to be and mature. Uh, but even in the earliest days with Non at, at IE, uh, you know, it was anywhere from genomics, biotech, uh, a lot of synthetic biology, uh, which is now kind of increasingly so in vogue and a little bit of a buzzword. And in 2014, I joined Lux. Um, and since then have, uh, have continued to invest broadly in the same areas. So my background is in machine learning, computer vision, artificial intelligence, data science. So most of what I touch tends to have a, a, a pretty non-trivial element of either software or, or machine learning or access to some sort of proprietary and, and, and growing data set. Uh, so that's anywhere from, again, AI and bio to uh, robotics and manufacturing, NLP for finance, uh, just did a, a beautiful uh, company in New York on NLP uh, and uh, really engaging an open source community. Uh, so more of a kind of pure play software uh, open source bet, uh, but a pretty broad bet. And, and, and I will say, again, three, I mean, at this point, six years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago, when Nan and I first started investing in these areas, it was, it was really just kind of us investing. And then us kind of, you know, climbing up to the tops of, uh, I don't know, the, the Coit Tower or Transamerica building and yelling as loud as we can, hey, look, here we are, we did these interesting things. And the rest of the valley kind of scoffing and saying, okay, like, that's interesting, but we're still into this kind of consumer mobile or enterprise SaaS bit. Um, and now, so these, these themes are just incredibly in vogue. And so it's just been an interesting kind of, uh, title shift uh, in, in terms of, you know, really the rest of the valley turning its lens towards this kind of deep tech phenomenon. What would you say is sort of the reason why that, that's, like, when was the turning point? It, it, there's so many reasons. Uh, you, you know, we can talk about, on one hand, I, I would say there's dissipating returns in, uh, or diminishing returns in consumer mobile, low-hanging fruit, enterprise SaaS. Uh, a lot of the low-hanging fruit has, I think, been picked. Uh, incredibly fruitfully, and we have you know a number of large and you know successful companies from that. Um, I think a lot of we can point to uh, both the bottoms up uh, on the deep tech uh, side. So a lot of the kind of coming to be maturing technologies and say, wow, like these things that really existed as tinker toy projects in various academic settings and and, and research halls are now kind of sufficiently mature that there's kind of commercial viability insight from a private financing perspective. Right, and and I'm actually to teach a course at Stanford where we talk at length about exactly that. The flip side, and I don't want to steal all of Non's thunder here, is you can also point to 10 plus years now of historically low interest rates, really driving a lot of capital, looking for any yield, 
And when that happens, you tend to pull forward, right? You, you, you look further and further into the what's potentially possible and you start funding those ideas simply because there's nowhere else to park that capital. And I think that really has accelerated a lot of the kind of deep tech movement. I would add, if you think back to when, before deep tech was coined a phrase and we were dabbling in, in some of these emerging technologies, uh, I think the common pushback against deep tech was around, hey, this is, this is a steeper J-curve. It seems like it's more capital, in, capital intensive. It's not as fast turnaround to revenue as building software products. And then the other pushback is, hey, these technologies are really immature. Uh, they don't have uh, necessarily proven out playbooks and they don't have proven out toolkits. And it seems like this is on the wrong side of commercial academia front lines. And that's a moving target. And I think over the last seven, 10 years, both of those issues have been addressed. So deep tech in itself is not a static category. It's been evolving and maturing all along the way. And what you have now is, is a capital market that supports more ambitious companies that do go through steeper J curves and an investor base that is thrilled to support those companies. And the other side of it is, is that in a lot of the technologies that, that uh, encompass deep tech, especially the one that we're talking about today, computational biology, a lot has matured from the technology side. So it's, it's not necessarily as scientific or academic as it was when some of these categories were first defined. And now they're on a, I think, a trajectory to break out of deep tech and, and maybe become mainstream investment categories. Yeah. Now, let's get into how deep tech has evolved a bit. And, and through that, you can give some context on how your investment focus at Obvious has evolved over time and where it is now. Right. Um, sure. So uh, I'm a managing director at Obvious Ventures. We are an early stage venture firm based in San Francisco. We launched the firm five years ago to focus on translational technology. So that's the application of technology that is used to solve real world problems in specifically in non-digital industries. So, so the, the sort of uh, hypothesis from the early days of Obvious and very much what we follow today is that there is a tremendous uh, amount of talent and a tremendous amount of innovation here in Silicon Valley where we're based. And there are, there are skill sets and there are toolkits that are being honed that seem to be overapplied to the same categories over and over again over the last 30 years. And, and as a result, we have this very fast-paced, innovative silo around internet businesses. And then we have the everything else. And at Obvious, we believe that the toolkits and the skill sets that come from Silicon Valley have applications everywhere. And we want to focus on building a bridge between all the talented people who are here with great ideas and ambition and the problems that exist in the rest of the economy, in every other sector, which, by the way, make up the vast majority of the GDP and make up the vast majority of the reason why we enjoy our current livelihood. They are fundamental to the way the world works, and we think there are so many ways to make those industries better, and we focus on that. And uh, I think bringing it back to deep tech, you know, we take a very application-centric view of the world where we get excited about solving problems. We get excited about inefficiencies in markets. We get excited about uh, a large industry that hasn't really changed for a long time. And the, the, the reverse engineering back to the toolkit is very situational dependent. So I think for obvious, 
we're willing to embrace any tool. And if we get excited about a problem we think is worth solving, we think the format of a venture-backed startup is the right format to solve it, then we're happy to back companies that are using the latest and greatest tools uh, and, and cutting-edge technology. But that's not always the case. So I, I think what we've seen over the last five years of running Obvious is some of the technologies that were used for the first time and were used successfully that draws attention to that technology. It draws development attention to build supporting tools, it, uh, shared knowledge, and some of those riskier frontier technologies become less riskier over time as they're applied the second time around or the fifth time around. And we've seen uh, a pretty steep maturation of a lot of the technologies that you would consider deep tech, like AI, deep learning, computer vision, Bio, a lot of these technologies have very robust communities of founders. They have experienced investors at this point, and they have at least some precedence of, hey, who has done this before and how did they do it? And that information spreads really quickly. So you know, we're, we're really fortunate to live in this era where we have all these shiny new tools, but not just that, we have uh, some, some operating manual that's being developed as we go along. And I think that the deep tech today is very different than deep tech in 2012 when uh, Zav and I were first starting to look at some of these technologies. And, and I would say it's like, I think it actually goes both ways. One is, I think you're 100% true, the, the ecosystems of the actual entrepreneurs, the scientists, the leaders uh, of these various technologies and sciences, they're small. And so they see, you know, oh, John's doing that, Stacy's doing that, let's learn, let's build on top of each other, let's collaborate. Uh, let's learn both from the successes and the failures. And then similarly, Eric and Nan, you guys both know this, the venture community is exceptionally small. And so I look back, Nan, at a, like a number of the investments that, that we participated in, that we led, whether it's a Zymergen, a Planet, a Ginkgo, a Recursion, all of these companies, like touch wood, almost more so for luck than skill, they, they've kind of come out of the J-curve in various capacities and they're looking to be to have the potential to be kind of massive outliers and, and, and to be massively kind of impactful, but then also generate and capture a lot of value. And that spurned, uh, in, in the best possible sense, a number of uh, similar companies, right? So if you look at the number of Synbio companies after Zymergen and Ginkgo, the number of space companies after Planet, the number of self-driving car companies after Zeus and Aurora, the number of computational bio companies after Recursion, that's great. But we're very, very, very well aware that if any of these companies falter, it scares the entire ecosystem, right? And so that's true not only for the existing kind of set of incumbents, but it's also true whenever we're pushing on the kind of precipice of what's next, right? After, after Symbio, after self-driving, after uh, computer vision, what's next? And when you build out, the, to Nan's point, when you're building out the playbook, you're very much so aware that your companies in some sense are kind of shining the flashlight as everyone else kind of heads down into, into Plato's cave with you. And, uh, and you need to make sure, not only for the success of the company, but then also potentially for the longevity of the entire field. If that field's gonna see the light of day and have, have a shot on goal at generating the impact uh, in the world that it can rightfully so have, you need to make sure that you manage it well. Uh, so it's, it's, in some, it's, it's, it's a disarming uh, amount of responsibility, uh, but it's an incredibly exhilarating time to be doing exactly this. Yeah. I, I had Carlotta Perez on the podcast recently who wrote Technological Revolutions of Financial Capital. And she said that uh, the next technological revolution, in her opinion, is, is not uh, AI 
uh, VR, crypto, those are just extensions of the existing information revolution, but, but that, that bio is truly the next technological revolution. I don't know if that uh, has any context to your work because that's more of a macro sort of- I can, I can only assume she read uh, various blog posts from Nana myself, so. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's talk about the state of, of computational biology uh, today. And if, you know, maybe not, we, we can start with sort of delineating between some of the terms because people you know, throw them out around a lot. But then I want to get into things like how advances in hardware have changed computational biology. When will we understand the genome? Uh, has deep learning resulted in any interesting new drugs? You know, uh, just sure. going deeper there. Sure. I think the first place to start with discussions on computational biology and, and the, uh, other forums that I've been a part of tend to start here is is really around identity. And, and I think uh, the, the new wave of biotech, whether it be synthetic biology or uh, traditional life science with advanced biological tools uh, and computational biology tend to get lumped together into the same sort of biotech 2.0. And, and they, they are really quite different. And I think part of the issue in untangling the space is really starting to categorize you know, what are companies really doing? What uh, tools, what infrastructural shifts are they taking advantage of? And there are many to talk through. So, so you almost have in parallel multiple waves of innovation hitting, hitting biology all at the same time. And the, the wave that we're particularly excited about is the computational wave. And you know, I would define computational biology as the application of software and data science used to explore biological questions. And uh, you know, uh, specifically in a way that does not rely solely on forming biological hypotheses or studying biology from a scientific perspective. And that's, that's a small subset of all the amazing things that are going on in biotech right now. But there is a subsect of these companies that are using machine learning, using data capture and infrastructure in a, in a very uh, novel way to explore these unanswered biological questions that don't always depend on the insight from a scientist or, uh, or some kind of biological mechanistic hypothesis that when you think about scientists and how biology has been studied before, it's always around how does biology work? Explain it to me. What's the mechanism of action? What's the target? And there's a new wave of companies that are sort of sidestepping that roadblock and start to, starting to apply some computational tools to search for the answer uh, in a different way than studying biology and forming a biological hypothesis as the immediate first step before you're allowed to do anything else. I think that's a that's hundred percent right. We um, <clears throat> we see oftentimes I think Nan and I and then likely most of the the kind of tech forward uh, West Coast ecosystem uh, biotech investors uh, usually you know somewhere from Cambridge or or Boston traditionally a little bit more stodgy a little bit more conservative kind of scoff at you know the the applications or the implications of software or computation or machine learning AI in biotech. Um, and the reality is, you know, Illumina wouldn't be a company if it weren't for Waterman Smith's, you know, AI algorithms on sequence alignment. 
Like these, these traditional AI uh, data science machine learning methods have existed and will continue to exist in biotech um, and they've, they've been here for, for really decades at this point. What's really interesting now is that the, the advancements to your point, Eric, in deep learning, uh, in, in, in our ability to kind of capture and build at scale high fidelity, high granularity data sets that are specified for a particular machine learning case now allow us to fundamentally change how we're doing the science. It's not just so, okay, we have an understanding of biology, let's use computation to further that particular vertical of understanding that was generated initially from this kind of uh, eureka moment from a, from a human scientist, but rather let's take a step back and let's let the machine generate the hypotheses itself, right? Where the only human bias really at that point becomes, becomes kind of questioning how and what sort of data sets you're gonna build. And there are assumptions and there is, you know, of course, a, a world of bias even in that, but you're removing yourself from the human actually having to interrogate and to explain a priori the chemistry or the biology. And, and this is not a new concept. This is a, a phase shift that we've seen happen across many industries, many problem areas, following the same transition. And, and that's, this is actually the core of the Stanford class that uh, we've been teaching for the last five years. Uh, we started noticing this idea early on when investing in AI companies, but there's this really strong philosophical difference that modern machine learning represents compared to early computational logic. And the whole class that we teach is around really the meaning of that philosophical shift and this new world that we're entering that is uh, exploring problem areas by bypassing first principles and bypassing logic. And it's a really exciting space that, that we've seen uh, mark tremendous progress in fields like computer vision, NLP, playing Go, what have you. Uh, I think all of modern AI encapsulates the same idea that we should use data-driven correlative models, machine learning, to approach a problem. And that's different than approaching a problem by breaking it down into its core ground truths and rules, and then using those rules to encode this logic and having a computer follow that logic step by step. And that shift uh, is now spilling over to the world of biology. And the name that we give to it is computational biology. But the philosophy is not new, and it's proven out in many, many industries successfully. Uh, earlier, Zavid, you mentioned you sort of shining the, the flashlight. Mm -hmm. Where in computational biology are, are you guys shining the, the flashlight right now? Like what's most cutting, like what cutting edge, or what, what's need, what needs to be answered or explored? Or? You know, I, I think a lot about, I think a lot of the challenge that Nan and I, or the, the hurdles and, and problems that we're working through are less so about the, the science, Right, so, so um, if we, you know, if we kind of interrogate, um, you know, uh, this particular set of targets or, or that particular modality of, of therapeutic agents, with you know, with machine learning or, or data science, what could happen? Uh, candidly, it's it's the it's the entrepreneurs and the scientists who, at this point, I think the leading research labs are all actually practicing. No one's studying kind of pure play molecular biology or pure play analytic chemistry. The, the leaders in these fields in an academic setting are very much so practicing these vertical disciplines with a strong disposition towards machine learning and in particular deep learning. Um, so I think the field on the research side is there. 
Um, what I spend my time thinking about is how do we build these companies? And because fundamentally these companies start to look different. The entire, what's nice for what we're doing, particularly on the biotech side, is that there's an incredibly fertile, well-established uh, equity market, right, for building these companies, uh, you know, in, in, in the private domains. And, and those traditionally look like single asset or, you know, two or three asset uh, biotechs where you really do, to Nan's point, you know, you take a particular mechanism of action, you, you, you say there's some probability of a particular, you know, therapeutic agent binding or perturbing that, that mechanism of action uh, or that protein in most cases. And then you make a bet. You say, let's invest somewhere between five and 30 million. Let's get it to phase or phase, phase one or phase two. And then let's flip it. Either we flip it to a big pharma company or we take an IPO. And at that point, hopefully we've made our money. And then you do that kind of rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And if they're right, that what we're doing on the research and science side is fundamentally a different way to, at scale, generate similar quote-unquote therapeutic agents or composition of matter, uh, but in a way, ideally, where it, they're both more efficacious, right? So, so their success rate through, through the clinic, through phase one, phase two, and phase three is higher than the abysmal, you know, traditional uh, success rate through the clinic. Uh, but then also that, you know, that there's a high throughput, right? The platforms don't just have one or two or three assets. They have a multitude of assets over time and they get stronger. There's kind of defensibility and network effects to the underlying platforms. If we're successful, then I think we're on the precipice and there's this potential to build these multi-billion dollar companies, right? I'm talking not just, you know, uh, STEM centrics, which was, you know, two or three lead assets. And then of course that entire thing kind of crumbled, uh, but you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion plus outcomes that look like what Genentech was in the 90s, right? The revolution in biotech. I think that's going to happen when you combine these kind of computational methods in, in, in biotech today. And the question for us is how do we how do we build these companies when the underlying KPIs don't yet exist, right? As I just mentioned, the, the KPIs for how you align uh, private rounds of financings to endpoints to then go to the next set of investors in, in traditional biotech exist. You raise X million, you show preclinical proof, then you raise Y million, you get it to an IND, then you raise Z million, you get to a phase two, then you go IPO or you sell to a big pharma. That's kind of like you know the, the high level playbook. When you're building out these companies where you don't want to cap that upside to just that, uh, it, it, it's very much so an open question. And I will say, again, like three or four or five years ago when we started investing in these companies, the majority of biotech investors, again, would scoff at us. They would say, that doesn't make sense. You guys don't understand how value is created in this industry, the technology and the science. Who knows? We've been promised this so many times. Look at this you know, uh, nature paper about, about Merck promising kind of computational chemistry design from the 90s, et cetera, et cetera. And now every day, I would say, we look more and more at the kind of traditional biotech investors, and they're starting to either invest in these companies or create companies that are very similar. And so I, I think everyone's working on what exactly the underlying KPIs or, or metrics for success look like for these companies. I think the end point is clear. Right, there's a chance to build fully verticalized, full-stop pharmaceutical companies, where from conception through kind of the sales and marketing of these companies, it's driven by, to Nan's point, automation, machine learning, the integration of interoperable data sets, and everything is really optimized, not just in silos, but using data, software engineering, machine learning, whatever you want to call it, to make you know, every process as smooth and, and, and efficient as mm -hmm. possible. And that's the end point, right? The question is, how do we align that, and how do we, how do we evangelize that to later stage investors and how do we align that with with kind of fundraising milestones yeah and, and i think that looking back 
five plus years, uh, the biotech investors' uh, concerns and warnings were, were categorically right. And I remember a lot of the early computational biology companies trying to sell licensing access to some platform or sell a data set uh, to pharma and they weren't speaking the same language. You know, pharma thinks in, in terms of IP and assets that they can develop. You know, ultimately, why are we all here? We're trying to get drugs to patients that need them into the market. So the common currency is, is what's, what's the drug? What's the therapy that you have that's interesting? And maybe I can partner with you. So I think that um, a, a whole generation of technologists are learning that currency and, and learning how the industry works. And I think early on, there were more instances of technologists coming into this market because it is data rich. It's a really great application of machine learning. And that was the end of the thinking. And then they were using yeah. sort of tried and true software platform fundraising and go-to-market playbooks in this industry that doesn't respect those platforms. And I, I, I still see this tension, but at least uh, I think it's clear to everyone that they have to navigate it. You know, the tension I is think- that tech companies are used to driving resources and, and capital and teams into building a platform that they can monetize. And then in the biotech world, platforms don't matter because biology is too complex. And if you found a drug that works, it's not indicative at all that you'll find another drug that works. So it's all about what's the therapy. And the new wave of computational biology companies are building these powerful platforms that they use to generate assets and IP that they can take to market. And they have to navigate that tension between, hey, should I put more resources into my first asset? That seems interesting. And and maybe I should follow that thread. Or do I keep investing in the platform, hoping I can find more and build this really wide, uh, full-spec pharma company that I think can generate a lot of IP and go into multiple therapeutic areas the fail case with both of those, right? And it's so easy to see how both of those options fail. If you do invest, you know, the majority of your money into your lead asset and divest from your R&D platform, the probability of that, of that asset still failing in clinic, right? It's not zero. Ultimately, we, we are beholden to kind of the stochiastic risk of biology and chemistry and the complexity of human health, right? And so if that asset fails, then you're essentially mortgaging the potential of your entire R&D platform on making sure you get you picked the right asset that will be successful to the clinic. Because if it fails, there goes any probability of success of ever financing that platform again. Right? If you invest too heavily in the on the R and D and the science and the technology, you may just drive yourself off a cliff. You may build this incredibly shiny, highly efficient engine. But then when you get to a certain point of equity markets where people will start asking, where's your lead asset? Where's your human kind of proof of concept data? You'll say, Oh, I, I'm not quite yet there. And at that point, the amount of capital you would have raised, the post-money valuation you would have had will be too high and will scare away too many investors and you're potentially facing a, a recap or a rejiggering of the entire company. I will say to Nan's earlier point, I'm not sure if you guys saw this, but I thought this was one of the more interesting things that happened all of this year. And it's really kind of a good public display that anyone can see of just how much kind of tension and antagonism there's really happening right now. There's this I want to say beautiful, but there was like this hilariously <laughs> awkward. Um, I thought public. Let's just say public. Public, public debate <laughs> on Twitter between um, between Andreessen's Jorge Conde, uh, who had just invested in a in a car key company based in Philly, and uh, Polaris's Bruce Boot, 
uh, who's, you know, of course, been investing in this in, in this area for a number of decades now, and and in so many ways, I think, uh, you know, Andreessen's foray over the last few years into biotech represents a lot of what Nan is talking about about like, you know, the tech investors getting excited about biology and and, and chemistry, and then Polaris, of course, represents old school, uh, you know, East Coast dodgy uh, biotech investors who. You know, have have single asset or you know two or three asset you know bets at a time are really good at flipping them. Probably have like you know exceptional quick IRR. Look for you know five to seven year kind of paths to to exit for these companies. Um, and the fact that they're both paying attention to each other and getting in fights on Twitter, to me, and I was talking to Nan about this last night over dinner. It's it's indicative of um, that there's insecurity on both sides, right? They're they're both right. starting to realize that there's some truth in what the other is saying. And it's totally different. You know, three or four years ago, they were both ignoring each other. They were both saying, okay, like those guys on the East Coast, they don't even know what they're doing anymore. They don't understand science or tech or machine learning or whatever. And then the guys and girls on the East Coast were saying, oh, those people on the West Coast, they think this is just another Uber or dog, dog walking app. Let me tell you, it's not. Right? And now they're publicly right. engaging and there's a little bit of anxiety on both sides. Right? But it's good. And, 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 and candidly, the... the the complexity of, of the businesses, of the vocabularies, of the sciences, of the go-to markets on both sides are, are, are complex. So I think being, in, and I think Nan and I, we're in a fortunate position where we've been doing this for six, seven years now, there's, 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 a lear- there's an incredibly lear- steep learning curve. And to be right. one of the few people actually in the world who really can be articulate and fluent in both vocabularies, right. I think puts you in a, in a good spot where you can pick and choose your truths, right? You can pick and choose the best sides. Of course, ultimately, to your point, Eric, you're still flashing that flashlight down the tunnel and you're going to have to say, okay, here's the decision, here's the turnoff, here's, you know, here's the wedge that we're going to squeeze through. But at least you have a good understanding of the risks on both sides and you can speak the languages to whatever you might encounter. It's, it's funny because, uh, Eric, you asked, what is the current state of computational biology? And I, I, I think you were probably expecting uh, a, a dive into the current state of technology or platforms or the uh, advancements in infrastructure like like sequencing and, and lab automation and things like that. But we just spent 20 minutes talking about market dynamics and personality clashes. And I think that's very telling. And that's part of what makes this area fascinating is that we are witnessing a new industry emerge from nothing in real time. And it's, it's, an industry that has multiple interfaces to other existing industries and incumbents, but uh, is in itself definitely self-sufficient and, and is taking on its own identity. And I think this is a generational shift in the biology space that we're seeing uh, play out right in front of us, and it's fascinating. And I think at the, at the polar ends of, of comp bio uh, or life science, there are life science companies that believe in mechanistic hypotheses of biology, and that's what drives value. That's, that's what foundational science is based on. And there, on the other side, I think the pendulum could swing a little bit too far, and there are companies that believe everything can be modeled about biology, and that the, the probabilistic, uh, stochastic approach can be so effective that it makes biological experimentation irrelevant. And the tech, the tech side in that extreme believes that biological hypotheses are at best misleading 
uh, and, and reductionist and at worst irrelevant. And then the, the extreme bio side believes that biology is far too complex of a system to be encapsulated into a model. And whatever early signal you're getting out of that model, biology is gonna throw a curveball, and that's not gonna to lead to any success. And you know, these conflicting ideologies, if, if they're not more empathetic and open-minded towards the other side, they, they absolutely uh, challenge and threaten each other. But I think the, the world that Zavin and I have carved out is a, a, a symbiosis in the middle a place where we can all get along. And the companies that we've invested in have a healthy amount of respect for science and for biology and for wet lab work, and they pour resources into consumables and running actual experiments. And uh, they also respect and invest in data science. And I think that approach that's combining the two worlds in a thoughtful way you know, isn't discarding the toolkit of any side, but, but thinking about ways to combine these tools so that we can better explore this incredibly complex and difficult space. I think biology is the hardest problem that we've ever tried to, uh, to tackle. There are so many uh, interdependencies, nonlinear relationships, and, and somewhat non-deterministic relationships that we're gonna need all the tools that, that we can get <laughs> to, to advance something that matters to patients. Um, but that, that mind meld is difficult when you have people with totally different ideologies, different business models, you know, tech investors and biotech investors underwrite to different valuations and, and they're running their funds totally differently. So everyone's getting smashed together into this middle area. And of course, there's some adjustment and some uh, discomfort early on. And we are very early on in that formation. And, and, and where, where is it all going? Like if, if we're back on this podcast, you know, three years from now, five years from now, seven years from now, are we still having the same conversation about the symbiosis or is it possible that one model has been eclipsed or is it possible that the whole industry is shaken up? Like how do you, how do you see it playing out or how could it play out? I think the, the entire industry is shaken up and, um, you know, we were at a dinner a few weeks back where we were talking about, um, you know, I think four of the top five company, uh, big pharma companies last quarter, spent more on share, backs, uh, share buybacks and dividends than they did on the kind of sales and marketing of their assets, of their, of their actual drugs. They spent more on their sales and marketing of their actual on-market drugs than they did on the clinical development of new potential drugs. They spent more on the clinical development of new potential drugs than they did in their entire preclinical R&D pipeline, right? And we're not nine where we're building these companies. They really started that earliest kernel, right? The preclinical kind of R&D stage. And so the reality is, I think in a lot of ways, big pharma has so many other things to pay attention to, like the 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 potential and, and the potential kind of uh, kernel that these intersectional, interdisciplinary technologies and methodologies represent. They're still very low on the priority queue for the executives at big pharma, and so we have this chance to build these massive companies while the while the big guys are asleep behind the wheel, right? They won't even notice it until it's too late. And I think I can, I mean, I can tell you that this, we've had bankers starting to approach a number of our companies in these spaces saying, well, what did that M&A, you know, acquisition uh, look like here? You know, if, if, if Google acquiring DeepMind, I think in 2014, right, was kind of, you know, uh, uh, an inflection point in big tech understanding the potential of, of deep learning and machine learning, 
I wouldn't be surprised if in the next two or three years we have a similar moment. Because if not, big pharma, I think, will have lost its potential to actually build this technology from from inside out, right? So, on, on one hand, I, like I, the, the the debate between the East Coast and the West Coast bit, I think that'll sell, settle itself settle itself out sooner. I think there's just there's too much potential here, mm-hmm. and there's too there there's too much you know uh, potential both to build companies, but then the the potential to lose because you don't do the homework necessary to get up to speed on the other side's vocabulary and jargon and mental models. If you don't do that, I think you're fighting a losing battle and those people will kind of be weeded out in the next 18 to 24 months. I think big pharma is going to start to pay a lot more attention because I think these companies, the, the, the acceleration is only going to increase. From here. Right. I think, I think what we're seeing right now, at least on the investor side, is just growing pains of adjusting to these new companies, figuring out the capital and product development playbook for the first time, second time. Uh, but this is a speed bump. I think if you fast forward five years from now, 10 years from now, uh, I'm an optimist and uh, I've seen some of the progress that these companies are making from the inside uh, at the board level. And I I truly believe that we are uh, at the beginning of, uh, of a generational shakeup in this industry that will lead to unprecedented levels of, uh, of the, in terms of the pace of biological discovery and the pace of advancing therapies to patients. Uh, and there are so many examples and case studies I could give you uh, from what I've seen in these companies, but I think, I think we're onto something really special here. And I think uh, even the naysayers are starting to notice and ultimately, I hope we have a conversation in five years and we're celebrating what it means to patients and what it means to society. Uh, also, the, the last kind of proxy, the, the kind of uh, signals that I'm reading between the leaves right now, again, six or seven years ago, the smartest research scientists, they weren't joining J&J, they weren't joining Sanofi, Genentech, Merck. Right, they were starting these companies because these companies represented a different way to do science and discovery. Three or four years ago, the smartest drug developers, right, the people who were really well established in taking a drug through the clinic, again, they weren't joining a J&J, a Sanofi, a Genentech, a Roche. Right? They were joining these companies because these companies represented a different way to do things on the development side. And now we're seeing the smartest executives and the smartest CFO type people the people who should go and join the executive ranks of a Merck, a, G- a Sanofi, a Genentech, uh, a Roche, right? They're joining these companies because I think, again, these companies represent a new way to do things. And there's, there's, there's this incredibly fertile soil, this malleable clay for them to come in and play with and establish huge platforms. So bit by bit, we're seeing the ability of these companies to attract talent through the lifetime of the company, different types of talent at different moments in time where suddenly able to access the best talent. And talent, I think, is a great leading indicator for where the potential of, of various markets is. So it's, it's, it's an exciting time. And, and talk more about the um, challenges or opportunities of, between sort of startups and incumbents in the space. Obviously, in consumer, for example, it's, it's very difficult to compete with Facebook or, or Amazon or, or, some, or Google. <laughs> How about in, in, in biotech and computational biology specifically? Yeah, you know, I think that the life science industry ultimately depends on incumbent validation in one form or another. Uh, the, the format of disruption that we celebrate in Silicon Valley 
doesn't always require incumbent validation. You have the Netflix blockbuster type of story where a sleeping giant gets surpassed and circumvented completely by a new up and coming startup. I think in drug development, yes, there is an ability over the long run to build a, gener a multi-generational Genentech type of company. But in the meantime, the amount of capital, the amount of know-how and, uh, and experience required to bring a drug all the way to market uh, still predominantly resides in large pharmas. And if, if you look at biotech or life science companies or even some of the companies that we work with, they still depend on pharma to take some of these assets further down the road or do a JV and help support the clinical trials. And I think that interface between the incumbents and the startups is very important here, as it is in most uh, uh, categories where a startup is interfacing with a large legacy market. It's really hard to surpass the incumbents in these markets. I think a, a more collaborative viewpoint than the one of I'm here to disrupt you is, is a better viewpoint to take. And I think a lot of the companies that we work with are still figuring out what the best way is to interface with pharma, how to speak their language. You know, ultimately, pharma is an insider's game, and it's full of insider relationships and deal making. And you know, some of the companies that we we work with have a tremendous advantage, I believe, in terms of their technology and their pace of progress. But a lot of them have started. Uh, recruiting from industry insiders and stacking the deck in their favor in terms of having a holistic story uh, and approach to these pharma companies outside of we have this tech that you can't understand and we're doing things uh, in this uh, totally orthogonal way that's not going to go very far because people are not going to understand how to value what you have so i think a lot of our companies are figuring out how do you take this advantage internally but translate it so it's so they're speaking the same language and they can get pharma to help invest in these, in these uh, products or to give them some feedback in terms of where they should go. Uh, I think pharma has tremendous know-how to share and, and I hope uh, collaboration is the way that these companies move forward. To double down, I think Nan's main point, I think big pharma represents three things and it represents access to capital. You know, for so many of these companies, pharma ends up either being an equity capital provider or a JV capital provider, and that's important, that, that, that funds these companies, right? It gives them blood to actually go and do their missions. Uh, it represents validation, right? If you are a small team of researchers from San Diego, from New York, from London, from Salt Lake City, from Toronto, and you're trying to talk to later stage investors about what you're building, you need some sort of validation because more often than not, the later stage investors won't be steeped in the sciences. They won't understand that the market dynamics of NASH versus HCC versus immuno-oncology versus aging and inflammation, right? So they'll want some sort of market signal from pharma. And then finally, it, it, re it represents kind of know-how. And the reality is, again, as, as I mentioned, the earliest kernel of research discovery, sure, like these, these people from San Diego, Caltech, Stanford, Harvard, Toronto, Montreal, wherever they might be coming from, they'll be able to do that really well, likely better, touch wood, if we're making our bets right, than any of the big pharma R&D orgs will themselves. But at a certain point, there's all of this kind of tacit knowledge in the organizations of big pharma that we need to learn from. And so just being intellectually humble and self-aware that there's a lot that we don't know, right? There's, there's what we know we don't know, and then there's all of the unknown unknowns. And so 
again, carefully treading forward with the expectation that over time, these companies start looking more and more like big pharma themselves and start becoming fully verticalized. But the path there, you need to make sure that you have your allies on your side, right? I think the other point that Nan said, which was like, again, just absolutely worth doubling down on, is it's so much so an insider kind of uh, old boys club. And, 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 and therein lies, I think, the blessing and the curse, right? The curse is for all of these upstart founders who tend to be a little bit younger, who tend to not have those established networks, how do you, how do you break your way in? How do you get into the, the, you know, the, the skull and bones club if you, know, if, if you were born in, in, you know, in, in Southwest Texas? Right? Like that's, that's, that's the equivalent of kind of what's happening. Uh, the, the blessing is, and we know this from so many various industries and, 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 and research paradigms, old boys clubs, or in small insider networks, don't always make the best meritocratic ideas, right? They're not making the most optimal decisions for what drugs or therapeutics will have the most effect, both in market and on human life, right? And if we're, right. And if we're able to right. follow that, right, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the fat in the ecosystem that we can capture. And I think, I think what all of the, the startups deal with, uh, comp bio and otherwise is, is that uphill battle of being accepted uh, by this industry that has this culture of not built here. Um, you know, sometimes people say that venture capital is branded money. Uh, and, and I think what you see in the pharma industry is branded chemistry, where an asset coming from a startup is inherently disadvantaged compared to an asset that might be even discarded by a Merck. You know, there are, there's terminology in this industry that's like, hey, this is, this is a Merck asset. This is valuable. Even if it might have failed animal trials and is discarded, it, it has intrinsic value because of where it came from. And that's the opposite of a meritocracy, right? It has nothing to do with the performance or the readouts of that asset. And I think our companies are figuring out how to uh, use the terminology and assays from the industry that are widely accepted to help prove that their research is just as good. And, and I think that translational step is so important because you can't go into this industry and just say that I'm different than you and different is better and you should, you should look up to innovation. Uh, you know, the pharma industry, they don't operate like CIOs of enterprises where they love innovation and they go to the conferences, scouting for the new shiny tools, um, they, they have very much an isolationist policy of like, hey, we're all in a club, we all respect each other, this is where science is made, this is where all the blockbuster drugs of the last X decades have been made, and we're the best at it. And anyone else is just a fly on the wall. And I think breaking through that boundary uh, is, is challenging, and I think it's one that uh, we think needs to be founded on uh, mutual respect and understanding of pharma to say like, hey, I know the language you speak. I know this disease is interesting to you. I know you have these previous uh, uh, hiccups and failures against this. And I think my platform or, or my product can help. Um, but studying the industry and being a student of history is really important here and not just to show up without any contextual awareness. Uh, and I think a lot of our companies even if, if the founders don't come from the farm industry, either bring it in-house, bring it into a science advisory board or, or something so they can pick up the context and they can speak the same language.
And, the, and again, the, the blessing and the curse, the blessing here is if you look again statistically at the, the last three decades of what drugs have actually made it through clinic and had prolonged success on market, it hasn't been the drugs or the therapeutics that were discovered internally in the old boys clubs, right? There were the therapeutics and the drugs that were, that were acquired once they showed significant traction, either preclinical or clinical, right? And that's largely because if you think about the, the amount of luck and success that anyone who's in the established kind of insiders networks had, they're, they're all exceptionally intelligent, but there were a thousand others just like them that just happened to pick the wrong hypothesis with the exact same data, right? So there's a reversion to the mean, right? If not and I flip 10 straight heads on, 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 a, on a penny or, or a quarter on one day, it doesn't mean we're going to get 10 straight heads the next day. But if suddenly, the, if we start believing we're going to get 10 straight heads, and I only go to Nan because he's my go-to guy for flipping quarters, right? there's an opportunity for, the, for someone else to figure out a way to make a, a weighted quarter. right? And I think in a lot of ways, that's, that's, that's the metaphor for what we're doing. right? There's the people who got lucky and flipped 10 straight quarters, and they think that they're just good at doing that again and again and again. And if we're doing our jobs right, we're finding ways to actually change the physics of the quarter so that it does independent of who's flipping it land on heads so yeah a little bit what's your sort of request for startups like where within you know where are you most excited where do you want to see more people building and more people experimenting uh if you were building something in space where would you consider pursuing you know what, what i see is an underlying approach that has been now validated by a few companies so so uh, talking about the maturation uh, curve of, of new technology, I don't think that we're at the beginning of that curve anymore with computational biology. I think when uh, Josh from Zymergen uh, was pitching uh, Zavin and I the, the initial idea for Zymergen, that was very early in the maturation curve. And at this point, we're, we're no longer there. So, so I, th I think we've, we've proven out this toolkit, which is uh, a closed feedback loop where experimental data sets generate observable uh, data that machine learning can use to then generate the next set of experiments. And that virtuous cycle spins and spins to uh, approach biology from a different perspective. That's extremely exciting and, and now validated. So now it's about uh, finding other nails to hit with that hammer. And what I'm excited about for, for uh, entrepreneurs is to uh, play the game of risk a little bit and look at you know, which countries are settled and which ones are still open. If you, if you unpack pharmaceutical R&D into uh, the split of disease area and therapeutic type, you end up with these interesting countries <laughs> to, to go after. It could be uh, a certain indication like GI or neuro. It could be a certain therapeutic area like CAR-T, or small molecule, or protein engineering, or gene therapy. And uh, I think, so far to me, I haven't seen a limitation of this approach going into those areas, and I think a lot are still open. I think CAR-T is really interesting. I, just, I think gene therapy is really interesting. I think uh, cell manufacturing is really interesting. And the, the call to entrepreneurs is, um, be a student of history and study where other companies have been building and where they've been successful and then map that against where is all pharmaceutical research? Like how do you uh, compartmentalize that research? And I think there are a lot of unoccupied categories that I'm currently doing work in. Uh, those are a few. And, and I would, 
I would I would double down and say, be a student of history, understand your edge on the science and the technology, but make sure you map that to a known market need. And so if it's cell manufacturing with machine learning or automation, that's great because that, that's going to be a huge kind of problem spot as these kind of gene and cell therapies kind of emerge. If it's the engineering of AAVs uh, to actually deliver, you know, uh, various cell or gene nucleotide kind of based uh, uh, therapeutics, that's great. That's a big open spot in pharma. If it's uh, a new machine learning model for, you know, the discovery of chemistry, that's less so exciting because there's so many, you know, that you, you are swimming in a, in a morass of others, right? And it's really hard to kind of actually establish how you're differentiated or credible, uh, how long your edge will be if your machine learning model happens to be epsilon better on you know, a, a, a various metric. I will also say, and this is just a plug for our own portfolios, I think there are a few companies that stand out that have, you know, full-fledged wind behind their sails, that have established, I would say, takeoff velocity, and, and, and have orders of magnitude of upside. And on the industrial biotech side, that, that feels like it's a Zymogen, maybe it's a Ginkgo. On the biology side, I think, you know, where recursion is today, there's, there's just massive potential. Not and I just invested in a company in, in, in London that's doing, I think, some of the most exquisite uh, protein design using both kind of high throughput experimental uh, assay design, but then of course, you know, the uh, being able to pick and choose from the cutting edge of what's coming off of uh, machine learning academia, right? Um, and then we're also just in the process of, uh, of investing in a new code that Lux is actually spinning out for a very similar concept, not on proteins, but on chemistry. And so if you, if, if you find yourself as exceptionally talented and, and, and really wanting to pursue these spaces, there's oftentimes, I think, a false bravado of feeling the need to be the entrepreneur or the founder when actually these companies have escape velocity and you can go and join them, the equivalent of joining Google in 1999 or 1998. Right? I think there's that potential to join a number of these companies today and really kind of be at the avant-garde of both establishing what these companies look like, but then really having your pick of the litter of, of, of pursuing research. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's yeah, like, yeah, I, I meet potential founders every day now and, and people who are working in these intersections, it's, it's just the most compelling and exciting uh, area to be working in. It, it's, it's great. Awesome. Uh, my guests today have been Nan Lee of Abdi Adventures and, and Zavindar of Lux. Uh, Nan, Zavind, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. This is fun. Thanks for If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.